Hi again, welcome back, Attorney Steve Vondran. Welcome to another exciting episode of Vondran Legal Hour. Okay, so we are talking in this podcast about trademark infringement. How do you prove it? I mean, it's real easy to, to look across the aisle on the internet and say, you know what, that company, they're infringing my registered trademark. I've got a registered trademark. Theirs is just like mine. But that's not the legal test. So let's go over the factors that we're going to look at. Now, the factors that I'm going to read to you are what's known as the sleek craft, sleek craft factors, okay? These are used in the Ninth Circuit. That's going to cover states like Arizona, Utah, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, California, the Western the Western states, okay? So the Ninth Circuit covers a lot of ground, and these are the factors that they're going to look at if you end up in a lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit, or for example, in California, in the Northern District, or the Southern District, or the Central District, or the Eastern District. There's four different uh, federal districts in California. So let's go over this. This is what a plaintiff is going to have to show if they want to prevail on a copy, not a copyright, but a trademark infringement. Now, trademark can be your logos, your slogans. You know, this is your brand, things that you have registered and protected with the, with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So I'm going to go over, this is Ninth Circuit Model Jury Instructions. This is what the jury will hear if you get involved in a case and you need to be able to prove these factors. Now, um, the test can vary across the jurisdictions, but in general, there's also the Polaroid test. In general, these are the kinds of things you're going to be looking at, Okay. Number one, um, and just to let you know, we are looking at nine different factors here, okay? So uh, as the rule, as the saying goes, no one, no one factor is determinative. Courts are going to take an overall look at each of these elements, and you just weigh it out, and you go with what, you, what your gut tells you, essentially, okay? Number one, the strength or weakness of plaintiff's mark. So a plaintiff has a trademark, and the arbitrary and fanciful marks like Nike, you know, that's like, whoa, what does Nike mean? You know, that's arbitrary and fanciful. Those are going to get more protection. They're just going to get greater protection than something that would be, you know, um, hometown bakery, okay, something that would be a little more distressing descriptive in nature. So the courts are going to look at the strength or the weakness of the plaintiff's mark. The plaintiff has a really strong mark, then it's going to lean toward their favor, possibly toward a finding of infringement. Okay. As it says, the more the consuming public recognizes the plaintiff's trademark as an indication of the origin of the plaintiff's goods, the more likely it is that consumers would be confused about the source of the defendant's good if the defendant uses a similar mark. So bear in mind, the trademark laws are basically a consumer protection law. It's designed so when consumers see something like a uh, you know, a, you know, Campbell's soup can, they can see that Campbell's and that the way it's written. And they say, that's Campbell's, you know, that's coming from wherever they make the Campbell's soup, you know, and so you can rely on the source. That's what it's all about. So that's what they're looking at in these types of cases, source. Okay. That's number one. Number two, defendant's use of the mark. What's defendant doing? The person that's alleged to be infringing, how are they using it? 
Um, if the defendant and the plaintiff use their trademarks on the same related or complementary kinds of goods, there may be a greater likelihood of confusion about the source of the goods than otherwise. So if they're, you know, both are kind of, both have a package on a, on a loaf of bread and they're both similar, that it tends to create a likely, more likely possi- possibility of consumer confusion. Okay, and again, likelihood of consumer confusion is the, is the test here. It's the test for infringement. Number three, the similarity of plaintiff and defendant's marks. So do they look the same? Are they similar, same color? Do they sound the same? Those kinds of things. If the overall impression created by the plaintiff's trademark in the marketplace is similar to that created by the defendant's trademark in appearance, sound, or meaning, there is a greater chance that consumers are likely to be confused, there's that word again, by defendant's use of a mark of likelihood of confusion, similarities in appearance, sound, or meaning way more heavily than differences in finding the marks are similar. Okay, so that's a lot of, got a lot of godly goop there, but looking at the similarity of the two marks, okay, because sometimes they're not going to be exactly the same. Sometimes they're going to be just slightly different, but looking at those differences, um, you know, how dissimilar are they or, or do they really confuse the person? Okay. Number four, actual confusion. So if the defendant, if the use by the defendant of the plaintiff's trademark has led to actual instances of confusion, this strongly suggests a likelihood of confusion. So evidence of that where somebody went in looking for one product, bought the other and didn't realize it till they got home, um, you know, those kinds of pieces of evidence can be very important. Surveys may be done However, actual confusion is not required for a finding of likelihood of confusion. So it's good that you don't actually have to have a finding of likelihood of confusion, just nice if you do have it. Even if actual confusion did not occur, the defendant's use of the trademark may still be likely to cause confusion. As you consider whether the trademark used by the defendant creates for consumers a likelihood of confusion with the plaintiff's trademark, you should weigh any instances of actual confusion against the opportunities for such confusion. If the instances of actual confusion have been relatively frequent, you may find that there has been substantial actual confusion. If, by contrast, there is a very large volume of sales, but only a few isolated instances of actual confusion, you may find that there has not been substantial actual confusion. So again, you're just going to look and point to any evidence that you might have of consumers being misled by one trademark over the other and getting it wrong, okay? Number five, the fifth factor in the sleek craft trademark infringement factors that the courts are going to look at in trademark infringement cases is defendant's intent. The knowing use by defendant of the plaintiff's trademark to identify similar goods may strongly show an intent to derive benefit from the reputation of the plaintiff's mark, suggesting an intent to cause a likelihood of confusion. On the other hand, even in the absence of proof that defendant acted knowingly, the use of plaintiff's trademark to identify similar goods may indicate a likelihood of confusion. So this is can be more difficult to try to prove the, def, 
the defendant's intent, their mindset. Um, were they trying to get a free ride here? Are they trying to confuse the customers? But you may find some emails. You may find some other kinds of evidence of that. That's what you're looking for. Factor number five. Number six, six of nine. The marketing and advertising channels used. If the plaintiffs and the defendant's goods and services are likely to be sold in the same or similar stores or outlets or advertised in similar media, this may increase the likelihood of confusion. So you're looking at the channels being used. If, if the two parties are in totally different channels of commerce, that's going to lead toward a finding of no actual confusion. Why? Because you have two different parties and two different venues looking at different things, okay? And sometimes they will look at, you know, the sophistication of the parties, of the likely consumer. And, you know, will one party know, you know, that's not Nike. It look, may look like Nike, but I'm smart enough to know that's not Nike. Things like that. Number seven on our list, purchaser's degree of care. Here it is. I was just talking about that. The more sophisticated the potential buyers of the goods or the more costly the goods, the more careful and discriminating the reasonably prudent purchaser may be in exercising ordinary caution, they may be less likely to be confused by similarities in the plaintiff and defendant's trademark. So like financial products, um, jewelry, things like that, um, things that are more expensive, automobiles, um, you know, watches, you know, things like that you know, where you may say, well, we're dealing with really sophisticated people here. They're not likely to be misled. That is just another factor that will be looked at. Number eight, product lines of expansion. Um, When the party's products differ, you may consider how likely the plaintiff is, the trademark holder, is to begin selling the products for which defendant is using the plaintiff's trademark. So you get sort of this zone of expansion, a reasonable zone of expansion with your trademarks. If there is a strong possibility of expanding into the other party's market, there is a greater likelihood of confusion. So this is for the party that says, hey, you know, we don't don't even sell the same product. They sell shirts and we sell socks. And you say, well, right, but we, it's reasonably likely that, you know, being a clothing company that we're going to move into shorts and socks and, and sandals, whatever. These are all things lawyers argue about, but looking into the product line expansion. So that simple argument doesn't negate consumer confusion, something to think about. Okay. And number nine, other factors, any other factors that bear on likelihood of confusion. So every case is different. You may have cases dealing with the internet. There may be other factors on how your mark's being used. Um, But that's a a general look at the uh, test that that courts are going to go through, the analysis. And before you consider filing a trademark infringement case or seeking an injunction um, or even sending a cease and desist letter, you should consider these factors and decide, you know, do we do we think we can prevail on this? Do we think the courts are going to agree with us? How are we going to make the argument in each of these nine categories? That's what you're looking to do. So I just wanted to help you out today. That's general information. If you need some help with a legal issue involving trademarks or copyrights, give us a call. We can help you go through the likelihood of confusion test, the sleek 
sleek craft. If I could say that five times fast, I'd have it made. The sleek craft case and the sleek craft factors. So um, other than that, you can find out more information about us on the web at attorneysteve.com. That's attorneysteve.com, the first name in legal services. Hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, feel free to share this podcast on your social media networks. We'll look forward to working with you again. Take care now. Have a great day.